0: I'm Connor Reid, with words to that effect. Picture the scene. It's January 1834. You're in London at the Royal College of Surgeons. You've managed to acquire a ticket for a highly anticipated and completely sold-out event, so popular, in fact, that the Archbishop of Canterbury himself has been turned away. This is the unwrapping of the mummy Horsiesi, an incense-bearing priest in the Temple of Amon the mummy has been brought to London from Thebes and the well-known surgeon and antiquarian Thomas Pettigrew is to lead the unwrapping of the body in front of a rapt audience, of which you are a member You are there at midday when the doors open, but even still you have to stand as the room is completely full. And finally after an hour of waiting and anticipation, the buzz of conversation dies down and you wait for the spectacle to begin Pettigrew solemnly walks in and addresses the captivated audience, explaining the technical details of mummification in ancient Egypt. Then the bandages are unwrapped, slowly revealing the dead body underneath. As more and more bandages are removed, a small carved scarab beetle is discovered to the delight of the gathered audience. It's difficult to get through some of the layers of bandages, but slowly the head is revealed. The eyes have been removed and enamel ornaments are in their place. And as the body is further unwrapped and the show comes to an end, there's some excitement as another item is found among the bandages. But in this case, it's only a clay model. No coins or papyrus or priceless ornaments in this particular mummy. Mummy unwrappings were hugely popular in Europe in the 19th century. And not just in the formal setting of somewhere like the Royal College of Surgeons, people were unrolling mummies everywhere at exclusive August institutions, at public events, at private gatherings. There were unwrapping parties, after-dinner entertainment, for those with enough money to purchase their own mummy. To us today, they seem like bizarre, macabre spectacles.
1: In some of them, especially the later mummy unwrappings, you get newspaper accounts so we can kind of tell what happened. Um, And so either, it depends how how kind of... hard it is to get into the mummy so sometimes they were kind of almost sawn apart hacked apart Um, and others it was a bit more of a delicate process but you know the uh the amulets and, and things that would be taken out of the mummy would be passed around and people would look at them people would be sniffing bits of the bandages and um so it was a kind of very sensory uh kind of participatory experience this is dr
0: eleanor dobson lecturer in 19th century literature in the university of birmingham and an expert in the reception of ancient egypt in the 19th and 20th centuries
1: but i think the climax of it um especially if we think about you know not necessarily true type stereotypes of the victorian era but the things we have in our heads about the victorians being massive proof the idea of this naked body essentially lying in front of them um Obviously, most of the narratives would would say, you know, this is the the body of a princess, which it almost never was, um, of course. But, you know, often they'd, they'd unwrap the body and find that it was a man at the end. So maybe that would be the climax.
0: So what's going on here? Why are Victorian people unwrapping mummies at parties? Where do they get all of these mummies? And were they all comfortable with this fairly gruesome spectacle? Are we happy today to continue to display these mummies in museums? And how did all this feed into the enduring fascination with Egypt, from mummy's curses to the tomb of Tutankhamun, mummy fiction to Brendan Fraser romping around Egypt? Mummies have long been a source of fascination and were, as far back as the 16th century, considered to be a cure for all sorts of ailments. You could go to an apothecary and buy a piece of ground-up mummy to be ingested as a cure for internal bleeding. Painters from the 16th century onwards would have been very familiar with the colour mummy brown, an extremely useful colour, which was a a mixture of white pitch, myrrh and, yes, the ground-up remains of Egyptian mummies. But in the 19th century, the craze for mummies reached unprecedented new heights as Egyptomania swept Europe. This craze for Egypt was driven by a number of things. Uh, Victorian fascination with death and the dead, um, interest in an age of empires, in ancient, wealthy and powerful civilizations. But it also had to do with access. As the century wore on, it became easier for Europeans to visit places such as Egypt. Tourist cruises to ancient Egyptian sites were well established by the 1870s. And this was a very different time. It seems kind of horrifying to us today, but in the 19th century, if you visited Egypt, you could climb up the Great Pyramid at Giza, have a bit of lunch at the top, and, you know, chisel your name into the stone to mark the occasion. You could stroll around wherever you liked without any restrictions, clamber over ancient monuments, chip off pieces of hieroglyphics as keepsakes, or maybe just have a look around for any nice antiquities to bring home as a souvenir. And, of course, you could, with a bit of cash, acquire your very own mummy. Now, from the mid-19th century, it became harder and harder to get an entire body, especially one of a supposed pharaoh or princess or priest, and these are all in definite inverted commas. But hands or feet or other body parts were readily available and cheap to buy. They could also be more easily smuggled out of the country in suitcases when stricter laws were passed in Egypt about exporting mummies and other artefacts. By the end of the 19th century, though, demand started to far outstrip supply and, inevitably, fakes started cropping up. So people made good money in the late 19th century manufacturing mummies. Now, all of this easy access to Egypt was, of course, facilitated by colonialism and conquest, a topic which is never far from any discussion of mummies.
1: Well, most uh, most histories of British involvement with Egypt start... In, in kind of modern culture starts with napoleon bonaparte going over um in 1798 it was where he, where he um occupied egypt and the british went in and defeated the french at the battle of the nile and over the the next kind of fair like chunk of the century the british and french are both kind of vying for for kind of um control essentially the british occupied egypt in 1882 and um it wasn't actually until the 1950s that the last british troops left egypt
0: French and then British control of Egypt meant that the country was opened up for relic hunters, explorers and tourists as well as archaeologists and antiquarians building private and national collections, such as those amassed in the Louvre or the British Museum. In many cases, ancient artefacts could be easily taken out of the country by political ambassadors whose position of authority allowed them to remove them unchecked. In other cases, explorers were hired to gather them.
1: We get Kind of big showman type explorers like uh, this man called Giovanni Battista Belzoni who goes over to Egypt, um, does some very kind of destructive things to get what he wants So he uses dynamite, uh, dynamite in the tombs and on the pyramids and, and all kinds of, of crazy stuff. Um, but his accounts and the stuff that he brings back becomes massively crowd-pleasing. I mean, Belzoni found, he found whole kind of rooms full of bodies. Um, A lot of them were being bought on the black market as well. Essentially, the richer you were, the the more likely it would be that you could get your hands on your own mummy.
0: In the last episode on dinosaurs, you may remember how museums played a hugely important part in the popular interest in dinosaurs. People were able to go and see one up close. And it's very much the same with mummies.
1: You know, in the 19th century, there's something quite interesting happening with museums. So museums themselves go from being these quite exclusive places. Uh, to places which kind of welcome um, everyone from all walks of life. And I think just that access in the museum space um, means that more people can see mummies actually on display as well. So
0: over the centuries, a mummy went from something medicinal that might be consumed to something used to make paint, to an entertaining spectacle to behold at a party, to a key part of any national museum. And this fascination with ancient Egypt continued. The mummy became a staple of popular culture, a part of literature and theatre, art and architecture. And then, in 1922, something really big happened. You mean King Tutankhamun's view? too? Atta boy, that's the fella I want. Do you know anything about him? Do I know anything about him? Well just you listen to me. Three thousand years
1: ago, in history we know. King Tutankhamun ruled a mighty land.
0: After years of searching, the British archaeologist Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, an incredibly well-preserved tomb with over 5,000 items inside, including a solid gold coffin and the famous face mask now so well-known all over the world. The tomb of Tutankhamun was an unprecedented find, an undisturbed tomb of a pharaoh over 3,000 years old. People descended on the place from all over the world. There were constant updates in the paper as the excavation took place, and the fascination with Egypt reached all-time highs. And along with all this popular interest, there's a resurgence in the curse of the mummy. But before we get to mummy curses, I'm going to take a quick break. This podcast, as I'm sure you're aware, is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, and I wanted to play you a quick trailer of one of our other shows. Are you interested in seeing what goes on behind the scenes of the Irish film and TV industries? If so, tune in to F&I Rap Chat on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Every week we host a discussion with a different director, our producer, editor, a storyboard artist, art director... Uh, line producer, actor, uh, script editors, uh, scenic artists, uh, storyboard artists, cinematographers, uh, line producers, actors, voiceover artists, uh, storyboard artists. We did. So, the mummy's curse. Then, by the time of Tutankhamun's discovery, it's an idea that's been around for a while.
1: This is a late 19th century idea.
0: Eleanor Dobson again.
1: And Roger Luck has actually written a really great book on this. Um, he talks about how there are these few, uh, a few select stories going around about travelers who'd gone over to Egypt and acquired a mummy or else they brought a mummy back to Britain. And once they get a mummy, bad things start to happen to them and their families. Um, and, and they want to get rid of these mummies and usually it ends up with them trying to kind of foist the mummy off on the British Museum and say, you take this, I'm not keeping it in my house anymore. Um, there's one uh, artefact in particular uh, that these stories kind of orbit and it's called the Unlucky Mummy. It's in the British Museum. It's not actually a mummy at all. It's a painted wooden mummy board so it sits on top of the body. Um, and that artefact has been uh, kind of blamed for loads of kind of... Coincidental deaths and injuries, uh, but also things as big as the sinking of the Titanic and also the outbreak of the First World War as well. So, all this wooden painted mummy board's fault, (laughs) apparently.
0: So, it was inevitable, really, that these stories and superstitions would get attached to the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun.
1: And so, um, when uh, this discovery is made and uh, the patron behind the expedition, Lord Carnarvon, uh, gets an infection in a mosquito bite and he, he becomes sick and then dies. The papers just latch onto this idea of it being Tutankhamun's revenge for the plundering of his tomb, um, that kind of thing.
0: It seems very obvious to us now, and to many people at the time, that so many of these ideas about mummy's curses, mummies getting revenge for being disturbed or desecrated, were wrapped up in feelings of guilt and
1: anxiety. One of the big things that changes across that period of time so from the late victorian era to the early 20th century is people become a lot more kind of ethically questioning when it comes to should we be taking these things um should we be unwrapping these bodies should we be dis- displaying these bodies and they're more interested i think and, and more knowledgeable about politics so you know the newspapers that they're reading egypt and the occupation of egypt is, is kind of constantly um in the papers so people i, I do think uh, were more kind of Um, in touch with what was actually happening in Egypt Um, so we see this change we see a change from people saying yeah let's get mummies over let's unwrap them let's have a good time um, through to people like Haggard and Haggard's really interesting because um, he's so fascinated by Egypt he actually changes his mind from thinking let's go over and take everything we can through to we should rebury the mummies because it's disrespectful to have them out on display so I think certainly in this period of time, people being uncomfortable with what Britain as a country is doing politically in terms of, you know, um, occupying Egypt.
0: And these connections with colonialism and empire, the often dark history behind museum collections, is something with real contemporary relevance. And so to understand this a bit more, I had a chat with Alice Proctor.
2: My name's Alice Proctor and I run a project called Uncomfortable Art Tours, which is a unauthorized guided tours in museums. I pretty much show up with private groups and we do Pretty little secret tours talking about colonial history in national collections.
0: I came across Alice when her tours came to national prominence in the media in Britain. The Guardian and other outlets covered her increasingly popular tours. The Daily Mail was unsurprisingly outraged at this young Australian attempting to disparage the glorious legacy of the British Empire.
2: So I've been running the tours for um, a year and a half now. And in that time, they've changed quite significantly. To begin with, they were very... Um, very secretive and very haphazard and now obviously there's a little bit more attention on me as part of that and I have a much bigger audience than I had before. So the tours have gone from being really academic and very much about museum history to talking a lot more about how we deal with these things today and giving more of that kind of contemporary relevance to these questions. The main thing that I try and kind of convey in the tours is that colonial history is in every museum collection, it's in every historical site, it's in every kind of aspect of um, British and European history, any post-imperial nation. Colonialism is everywhere. It gets into everything, but it's not necessarily obvious or visible. So the thing that I try and do with the tours is take groups through these collections and using the actual objects that are on display and talking about how they're presented within the museum, break that down so we can understand the colonial legacies, and the bigger context behind these pieces.
0: With the badges she hands out reading Display It Like You Stole It, the tours have caused controversy among the general public, as well as those running the museums and art galleries she provides tours of.
2: It's a slightly fraught relationship. I do always start the tours by saying, you know, I don't work here. For the most part, the museums are happy to kind of, we just politely ignore each other. Um, (laughs) I am bringing visitors through their doors, and that's really important to them. I'm not coming into the gallery and saying, this place is full of lies, but I am coming in and saying, this place doesn't tell the whole story. I don't want to be an authority voice. I want to be a voice in a bigger choir of responses to the collection, you know?
0: So what about all those mummies in museum collections in Britain and other countries? How do we deal with them today? Most people, I think we can say, are happy to agree that clambering over ancient monuments and carving your initials into them is not something that should be permitted at ancient sites. But mummies still form a central and renowned part of so many great museums across the world.
2: I don't talk about human remains on my tours because I don't believe they should be in museums. And so I don't use human remains in the gallery as a kind of talking point, you know. So many of the objects that are in these collections are not actually meant to be on show, if that makes sense. You often get situations where you have things like human remains or like very... Um, secret, sacred objects that aren't meant to be seen by the general public. For a museum to then put a mummy in a gallery without any warning as you're coming into that space that there will be human remains there, without any kind of dignity given to the person whose body is now on display, I think it's very inappropriate and very disrespectful.
0: Back to the late 19th and early 20th century, And this uneasiness with colonial appropriation is beginning to appear. And it fed into how mummies were portrayed in popular culture and literature. Mummies frequently sought revenge for the wrong done to them. Mummies became a part of adventure fiction, but also gothic and horror literature. Arthur Conan Doyle, the great genre fiction all-rounder, wrote two very influential mummy tales.
1: One's called Lot Number 249 and one's called The Ring of Thoth.
0: Eleanor Dobson again.
1: And these, I think this pair of stories um, are really significant actually because they give us the two sides of the mummy that we're kind of familiar with. So we get, you know, the scary, crumbling, falling apart, um, animalistic type uh, monster mummy in uh, lot number 249, but in The Ring of Thoth we have the kind of beautiful, perfectly preserved female mummy um, and uh, similar to the mummy film, the 1932 uh, and the 1999 remake, this idea of like love transcending uh, the millennia as well. So Arthur Conan Doyle has a lot to answer for when it comes to modern film adaptations.
0: Bram Stoker, famous of course as the creator of Dracula, that other great supernatural monster, also wrote mummy stories.
1: Another big one is Bram Stoker's The Jewel of Seven Stars which he wrote uh, we're talking a, a, a difference uh, of six years between the time Dracula was published and when that novel was published and it's really similar themes as you can imagine um, ancient aristocrat invades London uh, possibly like dead slash undead um, except this time it's definitely a woman rather than a man so um, there's a little bit of a, a shift in terms of what he's doing but it's, it's very much the same kind of story and um, One of the other things that kind of emerges in this literature which uh, when I first came to this I found quite surprising is how um, especially early on in mummy fiction we get women being really quite central to the writings of these stories. I think because I think what surprised me was that um, you know we think of early 19th century archaeology, Egyptology and we think of it as very kind of male dominated so we get uh, a lady called uh, Jane Webb writing um, the first reanimated mummy story called *The Mummy* exclamation mark, uh, a tale of the 22nd century, um, and I think that's in 1927. And after that, we get. Um, another kind of shocker. Louisa May Alcott, who obviously wrote Little Women, that's the one she's famous for, also wrote this, uh, this great kind of mummy's curse, mummy's revenge story called Lost in a Pyramid. Um, so we get people we don't expect writing mummy stories also kind of dabbling in it.
0: And of course, there's cinema too. The 1920s saw the discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun and the rise of cinema. Think of all those 1920s art deco cinemas with ancient Egyptian motifs and decorations. Egyptomania was everywhere.
1: The one that I still think is quite good is the 1932 uh, original The Mummy.
2: Now I know his horrible plan, he's going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself.
1: Um, It's very much of its time, um, so you can definitely see a kind of nationalist streak in it. Um, And I really like the 1999 remake of that. Um, which still, ha- you know, falls into some of the same uh, pitfalls.
0: That's the Stephen Sommers directed film with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss, which I'm sure you know and love.
1: But it's done in a way that kind of, it's funny and glitzy. And I think we kind of expect that. We expect, you know, Liz Taylor Cleopatra as being like very seductive. And I think this this kind of like sexy film, there's um, uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which is a hammer horror Um, featuring a very voluptuous actress playing the kind of lead mummy. So I think there's this kind of campy, over-the-top quality that we think of when we think of Egyptian films.
0: Today, the Egyptian collections of major museums are still a huge draw and we are still culturally fascinated by mummies, even if the Egyptomania of the 19th and early 20th centuries has died down somewhat. Issues around repatriation of museum pieces, including numerous Egyptian artefacts, flare up all the time. Just the other week, the National Museum of Scotland announced plans to display a rare casing stone from the Great Pyramid of Giza. Egypt is not happy with this, and they now want access to the certification documents for the stone and for every Egyptian antiquity in the museum. The museum, for its part, says it's confident it was legally removed from Egypt in 1872. These sort of problems are not going to go away nor, ultimately, is our enduring fascination with ancient Egypt. Egypt itself is at a crossroads of so many countries and cultures, both past and present. And we'll continue to ground the mummy in our own contemporary concerns. Look at the most recent mummy film with Tom Cruise, where the mummy is found, not in Egypt, but, of course, in Iraq. The mummy, with all its political, colonial and cultural connections, is not going away. Interest may not quite be at the level of the Egyptomania of a century ago, but the next wave of mass cultural fascination is waiting, silently, to be discarded. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. I guess you could call that the second instalment of my exploration of pop culture monsters after the zombies of season two. I reckon I'm going to do a vampire episode at some point, but if you have any other suggestions, then please let me know. Special thanks to my two guests this week. You can find a full bio and links to Dr. Eleanor Dobson's work on mummies, Egypt and other areas on the Words That Effect website. I've put links there too to Alice Proctor's Uncomfortable Art Tours, as well as further reading, lots of images, a full transcript of the episode and everything else you'd expect to find. All of this is at WTTEpodcast.com. Music this week was by two great Irish bands, The Jimmy Cake and Overhead The Albatross. Links to their sites and music is at WTTE as well. And you can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, I'm on Twitter at or C-E-D-R-E-I-D. So please spread the word, put a post on social media, tell your friends, I would really appreciate it. And that's it. I'll be back again in two weeks.
2: This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.